If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number one of the world of Kudasig. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative edition of the podcast before Christmas. We have one more left to go in this year. We'll do a year wrap-up podcast, the final weekend of 2017. In hour number two about our guest, perfectly Tom, who is a former ESPN sportscaster, now a regular on Fox News Channel, a conservative and a Trump supporter, and boy, there was a make sure you check that out in hour number two of the podcast. As I mentioned, this is our last show before Christmas. Today was our annual trip to see Santa Claus. Uh, and of course, uh, Grace Ziegler, my five-year-old daughter. It's costing money. You know, this is about as big as it gets for her. Her whole life is revolving around the holidays in general, but obviously Christmas is the big one. And I have to say that the visit with Santa Claus went absolutely perfectly. I mean, it could not have gone better. The uh, The Santa Claus that comes to our uh, weekly brunch, and we try to you – know, it's becoming more difficult, by the way, to limit your child to one visit with one Santa Claus – because uh, Santas are now everywhere. And it just, I don't, maybe that's always been the case, but it just feels like it more so now. But we've been able to do a pretty good job of that this year to explain to her that there's only one real Santa, and that's the Santa that comes at brunch. And this guy is fantastic. I, I'm pretty sure he must be a former stand-up comedian because he's very funny, and he really puts a great effort in. And he has uh, Grace completely charmed. Uh, I posted a video on my uh, Twitter and Facebook where uh, she met up with him. Uh, she, of course, remembered him from last year. The, you know, the guy is very memorable with his, his voice and his, his style of speaking and uh, even a little bit of an accent. And she was completely charmed, very shy, which she's not normally. Uh, and it's very obvious that she is still a believer. Now, how much longer that's going to be, I don't know. I mean, uh, I've, my goal has always been to get her through the age of seven. In other words, two more Christmases where she's completely a believer because that would give me at least one Christmas where our second child, Diana, is fully cognizant and where 
Grace is still a believer. So we would get one potentially <laughs> magical Christmas. I'm, I'm hopeful based upon today that we've got a shot because we've done a pretty darn good job of protecting the magic. Now, I will fully acknowledge, and I do this every year now, that there is no issue on which I have been a bigger hypocrite in my entire life than the issue of Santa Claus. It's not even close. Because when I was single and never figured I'd get married and therefore would never have kids, I routinely, and in retrospect, pretty stupidly, decried the entire concept of Santa Claus. And my philosophy on Santa was actually very similar to my philosophy on Donald Trump. That basically Santa was exchanging very short-term potential gain for very long-term catastrophic damage. (laughs) That was my basic philosophy. Interestingly, I still kind of believe that. It's just that when you get married, and you no longer have any power as a male, especially one in my position, uh, and and it is decided that the Santa Claus myth is going to be a huge portion of your family narrative, you know, my philosophy is, okay, once you pick a lane, you go with it and you do everything you can to make that lane work. So once it got out of the theoretical where I felt like, geez, we're lying to our kids. We're creating a, a vision of the world for them that is not only unrealistic, it's 180 degrees from reality. And you're setting them up for a lifetime of disappointment in exchange for what? Let's be serious now. Maybe five quote unquote magical Christmases, none of which ever turn out the way you really wanted them to. <laughs> the, the expectations are always much greater than reality. That just felt like a bad deal to me. I also thought, and this is an odd thing coming from a guy who is agnostic religiously, I refer to myself as a recovering Catholic, recovering from being Catholic. It always concerned me that wait a minute, you're you're conjoining. Jesus and Santa Claus, right? I mean, that's clear. You're conjoining Jesus and Santa Claus. Then eventually, at whatever age it is, whether it's 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever it is, once they realize that Santa was a scam, are they not also going to eventually think the same thing about Jesus? That seemed pretty obvious to me. And... You know, even though I, I don't believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, I do believe he was an actual human being, and I do believe that there's value in people believing in Christianity and in Christian values and in the, the idea that Jesus Christ might be real. There's value in that to society and maybe even in, to an individual. So that was always very troubling to me. But my hypocrisy is now (laughs) as overt as it can be because not only do I allow Santa to be taught to our children, I am now like the the greatest uh, defender of uh, Santa's magic uh, that there could be. (laughs) Again, this is just my basic philosophy of life. You pick a lane, you go 100%. You don't do anything at 40%. And so I'm the guy in charge of the... Elf on a shelf, Eli, her, her elf that comes to see her almost every day during Christmas, 
uh, season, and it's it's amazing to me. She seems to still totally buy that this little toy stuffed elf is real. That he's that the, the elf is a conduit to Santa Claus, and it's sweet. But what's really weird to me, and this makes me wonder whether or not I, I, I might be actually correct philosophically about the whole Santa deal, is that it's remarkable to me how ineffective. Santa and, for instance, the elf on the shelf, which is supposed to be his spy, really are. Because let's face it, what we're getting for Santa primarily are two things. We're getting the joy of the magic, right? The kid believing that this the world is this magical place and the excitement of what happens on Christmas morning. You know, that's what that's one of the benefits that we're getting. That. that that parents love seeing that joy in the kid's face, right? Even though sometimes it doesn't really work out that way, but that's the hope. The second thing you're supposedly getting is that at least during December, your kid's going to be more well-behaved than they normally would be, right? That's the exchange. That's my my Trump analogy here is in the short run, you're supposed to get some benefit for this sellout. (laughs) You know, if you're going to buy into a lie, you should at least get something in return, and I'm astonished that how ineffective. I mean, Grace totally buys into the Elf on the Shelf, totally buys into Santa, yet it has almost zero impact on her behavior. Almost none. And uh, in fact, it seems like she's worse during December because she's so hyped up. And so I'm wondering, what exactly are we getting here? What, what are we getting in return? And I, I dread... I dread the day when she figures this all out. One, because I will have, I'll feel like I have lied to her for all these years. And so my own credibility is on the line. Um, and also, you know, look, I'm, I'm human. The, the whole loss of the magic thing, you know, will be uh, disappointing and, uh, and sad. But I'm trying desperately to hold that off as long as possible. Just to give you an example, the one of the um, more popular Christmas movies uh, is the Polar Express, Tom Hanks's movie. It's an animated, computer-generated uh, movie, which, by the way, is not nearly as good now as when it came out. When it came out, the the uh, technology behind it, I think, was so mind-blowing that they thought, this is super cool. We can spend a half hour on a pointless chase scene, <laughs> and people will just be so blown away. It's not that good anymore. Because <laughs> uh, I remember seeing it in the movie theater going, wow, this is pretty awesome. But here's the extent that I'll go to. When Grace wants to watch Polar Express, I will make sure she can't watch the first 10 minutes of it. Because in the first 10 minutes... The, the whole story is set up by the fact that this little boy is starting to doubt Santa Claus and that the whole story is about him learning to believe. So I, I will go to great lengths. And, of course, Grace, much like her father, it's one of the very few ways in which she takes after her father. She takes after her mother in nearly every other way, for good or for, for, for bad, and there's definitely both. Thankfully, she looks like her mother. But... Um, one of the ways in which she definitely takes after me is she's very inquisitive, she's very cynical, and she asks really good questions. And to me, this is not a recipe for keeping Santa alive for as long as we might otherwise like. 
Interestingly, one of the questions she asked at brunch today was she said she wanted to ask Santa whether he knew Jesus. And I thought, rut row, rut row, this is, this is, this is Grace's way of very subtly starting to go, this isn't all making sense to me. I need to, I need to figure out what the whole dynamic here is. And we, we uh, quickly dissuaded her from, uh, from asking uh, Santa about Jesus. Uh, so I don't believe that that happened, although I had to leave a little bit early to, uh, to come here to do the show. So anyway, as of right now, the, the Santa myth is still very strong and very much in place. I would say that the, you know, Santa might not be at a 10, but he's probably a 9.5 as far as the belief meter uh, is concerned. Uh, and so I think we still have a shot. We still have a shot at uh, making it through uh, two more Christmases. Uh, and uh, we'll see what happens uh, this year and whether or not uh, Grace was good enough to get her um, her favorite gift, which is a uh, Sally action figure from the movie The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is her favorite uh, movie of all time. Now, one other thing I, that relates to Grace that I want to talk about before we get into the news of the week is something I discussed last week. And um, and that's referring to what I call cancellation nation, where it feels like we're canceling everything now far more easily than we ever have. And are we're creating new rules for cancellation that I think are nonsensical and dangerous. We're creating a lot of new rules in all sorts of area of life these days, whether it's sexual harassment or what have you. But this one really hits home. As you may know, I live in Ventura County, just north of Los Angeles, which is being hit by the massive Thomas fire, one of the largest fires in the history of California. As we speak, it is a horrible day for the Thomas fire because the winds are out of control. And I'm sure that up in the Santa Barbara area, which is fairly significantly north of where I live, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, problems going on. In fact, uh, yesterday there was word that they were going to evacuate the Santa Barbara Zoo, which we go to fairly often. Now, how that happens, I have no idea, and I'm not even 100% sure that it did, but that was reported. Anyway, uh, I talked about last week how they decided to arbitrarily cancel school the previous Friday, the Friday before last Sunday's podcast, for no apparent reason. There was, there was no apparent reason why they did that. In fact, not just last Friday. It was last Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So the, the, just before last podcast, they had three days off because of smoke, right? And I'm like, that seems crazy because the smoke wasn't that bad. And on what basis do you decide, okay, it's okay to have school now, but not okay to have school the next day? And oh, by the way, the air the kids are breathing is going to be at least as bad when they're at home than it would be at an air-conditioned school inside. So it never made any sense to me. Now, since that time, a couple things happened. The, uh, The city Christmas parade where I live got canceled because of the smoke, even though smoke wasn't that bad. Now, this isn't the Rose Parade, but it's a legitimate parade, okay? It's, you know... A lot of people put a lot of time and effort into this thing, and it just got canceled. No, no way to no to reschedule it because you only have one date. Basically, you can do that. Uh, and and look, maybe there were some uh, people involved who couldn't be there because they were impacted directly by the fire. Because it's not just my city; it's the surrounding area, and some of the surrounding communities have been 
directly impacted by the fire. But my guess is they could have easily had the parade and nothing. In fact, the, the day of the parade was beautiful. There was not a problem at all. So they canceled the parade. And then um, we, we have this little tradition that we do uh, about, I would say, 15 to 20 times during the Christmas season. Uh, there's a neighborhood near where we live that really does it up big with the lights, the Christmas lights on their houses. And so we go and we walk. That's what we do after dinner. We go for a walk through the lights. And Grace you know, really likes it. And my wife really likes it. And so it, it's a fun little thing that we do. And uh, she has her very, very first friend. Uh, is a little boy who she hardly ever gets to see anymore. Uh, we always try to set up uh, play dates, but you know, it just never gets scheduled. Anyway, long story short, we had been scheduled to go with them to go see the lights. And at the last second, his mom bailed out because of fear of the air. Of the air. Now, keep in mind, you know, the air here is a hell of a lot better than it was in, in certainly Los Angeles in like the 1980s when it was you couldn't even see for for more than a few thousand yards maybe uh, because of all the smog. But again, I, and I don't have a great sense of smell, but I couldn't even smell the smoke. Could not even smell it. Uh, and yet people are walking around with their surgical masks everywhere. I'm like, what is going on? When, when did people lose their freaking minds? So that got canceled. So then this week, they decided to put Grace's school back in session. So they took three days off, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they had school, which is exactly what they should have done. Now, interestingly, some of the schools to the north that are more directly impacted by the fire, they're off now for a month. They've already announced they're not going back to school till January 8th. Now, again... That's directly, you know, in the line of the fire where there, there might be people who go to school there, or work there, what have you, who have lost their homes. But I, frankly, to me, I don't think 10, 20 years ago they would have canceled school anyway. I get this is a polit- very politically correct time, but at least there there's mo- something more directly impacting them. But my school district, not impacted. Let's be clear, not impacted at all directly. So they have school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Thursday night, we all get a letter from the school superintendent. Now, this has never happened before. We all get a a letter. This is fascinating to me because it goes way beyond whether or not my daughter is going to school or not. I think this this is emblematic of a lot of things that are going on in our society today. Here is how the letter begins in an attempt to justify that school was open for four days. Now, By the way, just by virtue of the fact that the superintendent had to write a letter justifying that school was open when there was no problem is pretty... It's just flat out ridiculous. Okay, but here's what the letter says. First and foremost, we want to to be clear that the safety of our students and staff is always our number one priority. Translation, please don't fire me. District administration has conducted ongoing monitoring of the situation and has thoughtfully considered what is in the best interest of students. This monitoring includes data from the Environmental Protection Agency, the Ventura County Air Pollution District, our resources at the county office, and weather forecasts, including wind advisories. 
District leadership has visited each campus to assess and observe the conditions and has taken into consideration the ability of school sites to provide air-conditioned filtered air in every room in our district, which is considered by experts to be the best type of environment for these events. We are aware that many of our students live in homes that do not have air conditioning. We have communicated several times with the Ventura County Air Pollution Control District officials to determine exactly what the conditions are. And our latest update was at 1 p.m. They expressed to us that the air quality remains safe for the general population. Uh, Offshore Santa Ana winds continue to push smoke away from our city. The representative we spoke with affirmed our district assessment that the controls we have put in place, such as remaining indoors, utilizing air conditioning, etc., make it acceptable to hold classes. All right. Now, when I read that, I'm like, wow, what a load of PC crap. I mean, the superintendent has to write a letter justifying why schools are open when there's literally no reason to close them. And in fact, you can make a very strong argument the kids are way safer in school than they would be out of school, whether it's with regard to the air or the fact that out of school, they don't have parents to take care of them because there's no plan, no planning in place if you have two parents that are working. So that was number one. That was astonishing to me that this letter even went out. But then here's the kicker. Within hours of this letter going out, school was canceled for the next day. School was canceled hours after this letter went out. Which tells me, by the way, the weather didn't change. The wind direction didn't change. Yeah, there was a little bit more smoke on Friday than uh, there was previously. But not until late in the day. And there's nothing fundamentally changed from the time that the letter went out to the time that school was canceled. That tells me that somehow there were significant numbers, I would hope at least significant numbers, of parents who objected to their kids being put in school because of smoke from a fire that is moving away from us. Away from us. That is at least 25 miles away. It gets worse. So today, I told you, the winds are out of control. Right? Well, one of the there's, that's negative to fighting the fire. That makes it much more difficult to fight the fire 25 miles away. But guess what else it does? It blows all the smoke away. I'm looking outside the window right now, and everything is pretty much perfectly clear. It is a better-than-average day from a standpoint of clarity. And I'm actually closer to the fire where I'm doing the show than where we live, right? Before I started doing the podcast, we just got a message. Guess what? No school tomorrow. Now, um, there's so many problems with this. One of which is, by the way, we're coming up on Christmas vacation. So these days of school are critical because they're going to have over two weeks off. They're going to have one day Plus two full weeks. So 11 days off for Christmas, which is a massive hole in the calendar year, right, for learning. So now you're effectively extending that for what's going to basically be a month. Because when you have scattershot 
classes, there's nothing that can get done. The kids are already forgetting what they were supposed, especially with my girl five years old in kindergarten. You're basically going to have to start the whole school year over by the time January comes. They're not going to remember anything. That's number one. Number two, as a guy who likes to know what the hell the rules are, on what basis, on what basis are you canceling school tomorrow when four days ago you just sent out a letter saying you've monitored the situation and frankly, under worse conditions, you determined that it was okay for school to be in session. But this here's where this is important, folks. This actually goes beyond political correctness. It, it, we, we have lost our goddamn minds. Nothing matters. Rationality doesn't matter. Logic, consistency, it's all out the window. It's whatever is best on that day. This is Trump's America, by the way. Trump, well, everything Trump has done and said in the past is irrelevant to what he's tweeting at that moment. Doesn't matter what his past statements are, past actions. There is no such thing as hypocrisy anymore because we're just evaluating on how it feels now. Well, that's dangerous. Because I mean, if, if we're not going to have school tomorrow, on what basis will we ever have school? And frankly, uh, as I've said, it it is far but based on this philosophy you know this and i've never agreed with or even understood this philosophy if we can just save one one person just one then everything is worth doing that really if that's the case then let's just all stay inside and never go out let's do nothing because guess what's one of the most dangerous elements of school getting there and getting coming back okay that is far more dangerous than the air you might be breathing while there, which is the same damn air you're going to be breathing when you're home. In fact, again, probably better air than what you would be breathing at home where you're more likely to go outside and maybe not have air conditioning, what have you. I mean, we have lost our goddamn minds on everything. And now you can't, you can't plan anything. You, and the worst part of this, by the way, because my wife is convinced, because she's a school teacher and she knows how PC this whole process is, she's convinced they're not going to have school all week this week. Which would suck, but it would be better to know that than to be guessing every day. Like, for instance, if we knew there would be no school all this week, well, then we could go do something. We could actually, we could go someplace. We could, instead, now we're trapped because every day they have to pretend like they're evaluating. What, you know, at least give me, at least say some number. Give me a number related to the air quality below which it's okay to have school or above which, whatever way you want to look at this. Give me a standard. What's the standard? There is no standard. It's all bullshit. It's all based on whether or not the people who are making the decision think it will be more likely or less likely to cause them problems, whether they're school or not. Oh, my goodness. All right. Now to the news of the week. The, uh, the biggest news story politically, obviously, was the special election in um, the uh, Alabama Senate race. And the fact that Roy Moore, the Republican candidate, lost to Doug Jones... 
after Donald Trump had gone way out of his way (laughs) to endorse him, which really puts Trump in a very unique category. And I don't believe this has ever been done before, certainly not in my lifetime. We have a Republican president who made an endorsement during a Republican primary, endorsed a qualified incumbent, Luther Strange, and that person lost, by the way, to an inferior candidate, nutjob Roy Moore. Right there, although it didn't get nearly as much attention as it deserved, right there, that's amazing. That's almost unprecedented. I can't think of another situation analogous to that. And humiliating for the president. But okay, at the time, you're thinking, well, it doesn't make that much difference because, you know, while Roy Moore is a nut job, we didn't think he was a child molester at that time. And we presumed he would win easily and Republicans wouldn't lose a vote in the Senate. Well, then, after Trump endorses Moore, and Moore gets charged with all these 35, 40-year-old accusations that as a 30-something, he had a liking for teenage girls, underage girls, and maybe even have assaulted an underage girl. After all that, and it appears as if Moore might still win, Trump backs, goes back into the race. His own daughter, his own daughter, his favorite daughter, not the one he doesn't like, his favorite daughter, Ivanka, says there's a special place in hell Now, she didn't use his name, I don't think, but she was directly referring to him. There's a special place in hell for people like Roy Moore. And despite his own daughter doing that, Trump goes out of his way to re-endorse Roy Moore. Now, had Roy Moore won, at least that sellout would have gotten a vote in the Senate, right? It would have kept the Republican majority at 52. Uh, Frankly, I don't think that that was worth the sellout. In fact, I don't think it was even close because here's here's what would have been the problem. Not only is a sellout, in my mind, as a guy who actually cares about principles, (laughs) inherently wrong, but I know this is antithetical to everything Trump does because everything Trump does is about what happens today, but down the line... Roy Moore, nut job, accused child molester, was going to be far more detrimental to the Republican Party in the midterm elections than the one vote for the next 11 months or 12 months would have been worth. In other words, had Roy Moore won, then to me, and it's hard to put a number on it, but there's, there's no question in my mind, Republicans would have lost more than one seat in November of next year. Because guess what? Roy Moore would have become the face of the Republican Party in the U.S. Senate. And that's not a face you want. The media would have promoted him at every possible moment. And he would have been nationalized. So Republicans should be thanking their lucky stars that Roy Moore lost. Now, the one vote lost for the next uh, at least a year is going to be harmful, but it won't take effect, it doesn't look like, until 
after tax reform is voted on and looks like it's going to be passed. And in a weird way, I think Roy Moore losing helped tax reform get done, assuming it actually does get finalized. And that's because (laughs) it became very, very clear. See, there's a big difference in human behavior between thinking something is true and knowing it's true. Before Roy Moore lost, Republicans in the Senate and in the House thought, okay, we got to get this done because this is our last chance to get anything done because we're going to get wiped out next year. But when he lost, all doubt was removed. So now Republicans realize they have nothing to lose. And I think that was the last bit of incentive, especially when they're about to lose a vote in Alabama uh, when uh, Luther Strange is replaced by Doug Jones, that that was enough of an impetus to get them off their asses and get this thing done. So in the very, very short run, Roy Moore losing had some benefit. And in the long run, it probably helped prevent some more catastrophe. Now, there's a good chance the midterm elections is still going to be a catastrophe for Republicans. I just don't think it will be quite as catastrophic without Roy Moore as the face of the Republican Party as it would be with Roy Moore as the face of the Republican Party. For the record, and I wavered, like a lot of people did, you know, on what was going to happen with Roy Moore. When the allegations first came out, I wrote a column saying he's probably still going to be a senator. I could see him losing, but I think unless something big happens, he'll win. After that, a couple of big things did happen. And by the time Election Day came around, the morning of election, I predicted, for the record, that Doug Jones would win by two points. He ended up winning by, I think, 1.6 percentage points, it looks like right now. So that's about as close as you're going to get. So... You got that going for you, for whatever that's worth, which is nice. Uh, But I I just felt as if, even though I have very little faith in voters in general, and specifically the voters of Alabama, it just felt to me like Democrats were so energized here and that Republicans were so demoralized that it was going to be very difficult for for more to hang on. And the, the polls were all over the place. I mean, hell, Fox News Channel had... Jones winning by 10 points just before the election. But for whatever reason, I had a gut feeling that it would be Jones. It was Jones. I was happy that it's Jones for two reasons. Roy Moore does not belong in the Senate. Yes, I get that Doug Jones is exceedingly pro-abortion, and that's terrible. It's the lesser of two evils here. I don't believe that Doug Jones, uh, between now and when he is likely to be removed from office, hopefully in, in 2020, that he will ever be able to really impact anything. It's possible, I guess he could, but that seems unlikely with regard to his impact on the issue of abortion as long as Republicans hold the Senate maybe in 2019, 2020, during that time period. There's definitely a risk of that, but to me the risk was greater with with Roy Moore. The principle was larger, and the long-term political damage that would be done by Roy Moore being there was also greater. Uh, That doesn't mean there's not going to be damage, because there's going to be damage. I mean, the polls are showing consistently now that by large, almost unprecedented numbers, the American people 
want Democrats to control Congress. And in a large part, that's in response to Donald Trump. They want to check on Donald Trump. And they, you know, they're Democrats and a lot of moderates are chomping at the bit. They can't get rid of him right now. So the best they can do is make him powerless. And that they're going to get their first opportunity to do that in a large way in November of 2018. And right now, it's a, you know, a lot can happen. A lot can happen. But all things being equal between now and November of 2018, it's a very strong bet. The Democrats are going to take the House and maybe even the Senate, which was thought to be impossible because of how many seats they have to defend in 2018. But I think there's a good chance they even take the Senate. And the proof of this is, you know, all over the place. It's not just the polling. Rumors this week that Paul Ryan's going to retire after 2018. Now, I don't know if that rumor is true, but that rumor wouldn't likely even be out there unless Paul Ryan didn't see the handwriting on the wall and was like, yeah, it might be a good time to get the hell out of here. Because nobody wants to be in the minority, especially when you've been the Speaker of the House and now Nancy Pelosi is, is the Speaker of the House. Nobody wants that. So the only thing good out of all this is that it, it looks like tax reform is going to pass. Is this the greatest tax reform bill of all time like Trump wants to tell you to tell, it, tell you it is? No. Uh, I mean, you know, to me, there's, it's, it's not as large as it could be. Uh, There's some issues about it that I have, although in general, it sounds like it would be better than what we currently have. So it's it's a step in the right direction. I'll give them credit for that if it gets done. The part of this that I am absolutely stunned by, and I have so little regard, as you know, for the news media, not just their their liberal philosophy, but also their utter incompetence. It is stupefying to me that in the midst of this tax reform debate, there has been so little attention paid to the fact that currently it appears as if the Obamacare mandate is going to be removed in this tax bill. Now, that is a huge deal. It's not just a huge deal because it is effectively a tax. Because if you don't get health care, then you have to pay a tax uh, or a penalty, whatever they want to call it. But, you know, that's a big deal because a, a lot of people will be impacted by that. And if you don't want to get health insurance and you're young and healthy and you don't think you need it and you know that if you get hurt, the emergency room has to take care of you anyway, then it can actually make more sense to not, not get health insurance because the health insurance is more expensive than the penalty was. And so the mandate going away, the mandate going away is um, a massive deal because if the mandate goes away in order to remove that tax, that penalty, then guess what? Obamacare is going to die. And I know a lot of conservatives go, good. Well, yeah, except... When I say Obamacare is going to die, what I really mean is the entire structure of our health care system is going to collapse. Because Obamacare, to use, you know, a probably overused medical analogy, Obamacare is basically a cancer 
that has taken over the entire body of our healthcare system. Well, now we're going to just slash it without even a precision surgery, and we're just gonna, we're just going to let the patient bleed all over the place as we do a hatchet job on parts of this cancer, specifically the mandate. Well, what's going to happen? It's going to create a domino effect that the whole body is going to die. That's the most likely scenario because now you're going to have the healthiest people go out of the system, which is going to increase premiums dramatically. And by the way, these projections are always off. When it comes to the realm of healthcare, partially because a lot of the people doing the projections are liberals and they don't think about human behavior properly. But the number one problem with socialized medicine has always been this basic premise. When you make something free or almost free, guess what? People will use more of it. I know this is a shocking concept, but people will use more of it than they normally would when it's free or almost free. If it's not free and, you know, you've got a minor medical ailment, guess what you do? You suck it up and you don't go into the doctors. If it's free, then there's no disincentive to getting everything possibly done. And sometimes that means elective procedures as well. So invariably, the costs are always much higher. Well, it works the same way here. And this is a guess, but my guess is there's going to probably be more people opting out of health insurance, at least the people that you want to be insured, so that insurance companies can survive based upon the pool of people being at least somewhat healthy. It's going to be that that percentage is going to be higher than anticipated. The bottom line is, regardless of the details, now this is the death spiral. This is the death spiral for Obamacare and probably our health care system. So then what happens? What happens now? Now, how long is that going to take? I, you know, I don't know. I, this is not my area of expertise. But it's not going to be that long. It's going to happen within the next couple of years. And so who's going to get blamed for that? Uh, yeah, spoiler alert. It's going to be Republicans. It's not even going to be close. Republicans always get the blame for everything if there's any doubt. But this is as clear cut as it gets. The media will be able to say, aha, Republicans and Donald Trump removed the individual mandate. And from that point on, Obamacare, which was working swimmingly, fell apart. And now we've got a massive mess. And then what happens? Think about this, folks. And this is, goes back to my theme on Trump. From day one, here's this scenario. Here's the nightmare scenario. So Democrats take the House and the Senate in 2019 just as Obamacare is collapsing. What's going to be their fix? You know what their fix is going to be. It's going to be some form of single-payer socialized medicine, which is going to be way worse than even Obamacare was because that's the only way Democrats and socialists know how to respond to anything. And they will have the political power to do it. And you know who's going to probably be leading the charge? Donald frickin' Trump. Congratulations. You have been conned. I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. That's what's going to happen, folks. And this will probably be the exchange he will make to remain in office. 
I still believe he'll probably be impeached, but I think it'll be a Bill Clinton situation. The, this, the, the circumstances are very, very similar to what happened with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, even though the, I believe that, depending on what Mueller, Robert Mueller, the special counsel, comes up with, the charges against him will likely be far more serious. The evidence might not be as strong. But politically, this is very similar. And, and one of the things we're seeing which is really disgusting to me, is that formerly credible people on the right, like Mark Levin, are now doing to Robert Mueller, a man of impeccable character, a Republican, a man who served his country honorably. They're now doing to Robert Mueller what Mark Levin was most outspoken about during the Clinton-Winsky affair, which was outrageous, They're doing to Robert Mueller exactly what the Democrats and the media did to Ken Starr. Exactly. They're taking a good man who they know cannot respond to them, who they fear has the goods on them, and they are destroying his reputation and fooling their cult following purely because it's good for them, it's good for their ratings, and they're trying to protect Trump. Because if Trump goes down, they'll be exposed as the utter frauds that they are. It's disgusting. It drove me crazy what Democrats and liberal media did to Ken Starr, who was an imperfect but good man. And if the shoe was on the other foot, (laughs) my God, if, if Mueller was in the exact same position investigating Hillary Clinton, do you think there's any chance at all Sean Hannity or Mark Levin, or anybody else in the conservative media elite would be criticizing Robert Mueller if the facts were exactly the same? I mean, because one of his agents texted that Trump was an idiot, which, by the way, he is, and is no longer part of the probe? I mean, what, what's, the, what's the scandal here? If anything, that goes to Mueller's credibility. Trump's own deputy attorney general testified this week. He testified this week that Mueller's doing a fine job. He would never fire him based upon the current evidence. What more do you want? This is Trump's own deputy attorney general, the guy who would be in charge of doing so. The guy who, if anybody would have an incentive to provide a justification for Mueller, it's him. Yet under oath in front of Congress, before television cameras, he said, nope, nope, not, no way. In a remotely rational world, that ends it. That ends the controversy that was BS to begin with. But it hasn't even been a bump in the road for these people. I mean, it's an upside-down world, as I always say. Everything's upside-down. None of this makes any damn sense. It's outrageous, and let's be very clear. If what we think we know pretty solidly about Trump-Russia was known about Hillary Clinton and she was president, the conservative media industrial complex would be 24-7 on fire calling for her head. And it wouldn't matter who the hell the prosecutor was. This would be an issue of national security. Our future as a country would be at stake. This would be the most important principle that's ever been defended. 
These are all a bunch of brazen hypocrites and frauds. And nobody in the right-wing media will tell you that because it's not in their self-interest to do so. But I don't give a shit, so I just told you what the truth is. That's what you get from this podcast. You don't get a new place else. Another thing you get from this podcast you don't get anything anywhere else is uh, the truth about this sex abuse hysteria that is still ongoing. I wrote two columns this week, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I wrote a third column, by the way, about how uh, Donald Trump is the biggest loser in the whole Roy Moore debacle. So you want to check that out, especially the headline I was trying to play on reality TV. I said that the Roy Moore loss has has made Trump go from being the celebrity apprentice to the biggest loser. And then that very day that that column came out, Omarosa got fired or was revealed that Omarosa got fired from the White House. So I thought that was particularly appropriate timing. And the Omarosa situation, I don't want to delve too deeply into it, but folks, if you have any doubt that there is massive dysfunction in the White House, the Omarosa story proves that beyond any shadow of a doubt. And the most interesting element to me about the Amorosa story was that apparently General Kelly, when she objected to her firing and said, well, I want to talk to Donald Trump, Kelly said to her that the president has been informed of your firing and agrees with it. Now, if that's true, and there's no way to 100% verify it, if that's true, Trump's not really president anymore. I mean, because he doesn't even have control over whether Amarosa has a job that no one even knows what the hell she was doing, then effectively his balls have been snipped and he's just playing the role of president. Which, by the way, I'm okay with in the short run. That's the least damaging scenario that we could be having. If that's what's going on, I'm somewhat okay with it. Anyway, back to the sexual abuse thing. I wrote two columns about this because this week there's a new trend. See, we, we, need, we need more meat. We need more. The, the, the monster needs to be fed, you know, this, this whole hysteria. So now we're lowering the bar in order to be able to feed the monster. And now we're having a situation where clearly consensual relationships are being viewed in retrospect somehow as sexual harassment because the people, the males, the males involved were allegedly in a powerful enough position to force the sex, even though it was, by the woman's admission, consensual. One of the columns I wrote was inspired by a story that Variety did about Matt Lauer. And this one really blew my mind, because, and I really urge you to check it out. Now, as you probably know, I have somewhat of a connection to Matt Lauer. I'd done three Today Show interviews with him that were all high profile. I've Know his assistant pretty well, who also got fired uh, in a similar situation just two weeks before Matt Lauer did, and I think they were directly related uh, from a political standpoint. I've gotten to know Lauer pretty well, spent a decent amount of time with him under from some diff- difficult circumstances. Anyway, I, I don't have any love for Matt Lauer, but I do care about the truth, and I, I can smell a railroad job when I see one, although that's a mixed metaphor. I can smell it when I see it, but okay. I think you know what I'm talking about. The point here is this story was a total fraud. Not that there wasn't an affair. I presume there probably was, but here was the story. That this woman who was working at NBC as a production assistant at the age of 24 had a one-month affair 
with Matt Lauer, which she says was 100% consensual. And it happened during a time period when she was leaving NBC to go take a job as an anchor, a TV news anchor, in Charleston, West Virginia. And somehow, Variety and this woman and all the PC commentators on Twitter all perceived that somehow this affair was akin to assault by Matt Lauer because the power imbalance was so great. Matt Lauer, the host of the Today Show, and this woman, a lowly production assistant at NBC, that inherently, because this woman felt all these years later, this happened back, by the way, in 2000. So 17 years later, this woman feels, those were her words, feels like a victim. Therefore, she's a victim. Except the facts don't remotely bear this out. Number one, this was not a uh, helpless wallflower. This is a woman who was a college gymnastics star. Now, why is that relevant? Um, when you're doing gymnastics in college, you're walking out in front of thousands of people in less than your underwear and doing all sorts of physical acts that nobody else could even dream of doing. All right? So you, this is not a woman who is afraid. All right? This is not somebody who is super shy. Number two, she was leaving NBC. That's what started the conversation between her and Lauer. Lauer, I'm not going to defend him as a cad. He was married at the time, which she knew. Lauer saw this as an opportunity. Oh, this hot 24-year-old, she's leaving so I can have some fun for the next month or so, and then she's out of my hair. I got nothing to worry about here, and there's no conflicts of interest because I have no control over her. She's leaving, and by the way, she's leaving to go to a CBS affiliate. So, so what power does Matt Lauer have over her? None! In fact, you could argue, if you used your frickin' brain, that the moment, the moment they got naked, guess who had the power in that relationship? She did. Because now she can go to the tabloids at any moment to get paid for a great story about Matt Lauer cheating on his wife. (laughs) Can we please use our frickin' brains? It's driving me crazy. So... Check out that column at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Chris Matthews is now in the fire. Um, and I'm not a fan of Chris Matthews, even though, bizarrely, and this, it's weird how often this happens. <laughs> Maybe I just have had such a weird career that I, I get connected to a lot of people, but it just seems like I get connected to a lot of people that get in trouble. That could be a coincidence. I'm not sure. But I happen to know Chris Matthews a little bit. In fact, I have a great Chris Matthews story which I should probably tell, even though we're running out of time in this hour. Uh, so I, uh, here I'm going to call an audible, and I'm going to tell this Chris Matthews story as soon as, um, well, you know what, I'll tell the story now, and then I'll tell you why, what I think about the allegations against him. Chris Matthews happened to grow up with my mother in the Somerton section of Philadelphia. And in the Somerton section of Philadelphia was basically nothing but my mother and her relatives. <laughs> I mean, that was basically what it was. It's technically inside the city of Philadelphia, but uh, at that time period, uh, you know, many years ago, uh, you know, my mother would be, uh, what, 70-something years old now. Uh, you know, back in that time period, even though it was technically within Philadelphia, there it was very rural. In fact, they had horses, my mother did. She had a donkey that was named Moses that was 
maybe the most famous resident of Somerton because Moses would constantly get loose and uh, everyone would know, oh, the trainer's donkey is loose. We got to go bring him back to the trainer's. Uh, I mean, this donkey was so famous and lived so long, supposedly by family lore. Supposedly by family lore, this donkey Moses uh, lived to be one of the oldest donkeys or mules. I can never remember what the hell the difference is. But, you know, one of the, supposedly one of the oldest to ever live. And he became so famous that there was actually an article written about him in the Philadelphia, I think it was the Philadelphia Inquirer. And um, anyway, my grandfather, who, owned, who had purchased the donkey for my mother, wanted to preserve Moses. And this is going to get to Chris Matthews, I promise. And uh, so Moses is finally looking like he's going to croak. But he's going to croak on a very cold winter night. And the taxidermist couldn't be found. And so um, the taxidermist's young assistant comes out. And my grandfather's great design was to save the head of Moses and mount him in his den. I know this sounds crazy, but if you understood the Moses story, it's not as nuts as it sounds. Because again, Moses is a local celebrity who caused my grandfather an enormous amount of trouble because he was exceedingly high maintenance. But everybody loved him because he's like the town mascot. In fact, he was literally the mascot of a, uh, of a professional, the Frankfurt Yellow Jacket professional football team at one point. Anyway, I digress. So it's this cold winter night, and Moses is finally going to kick it. And, um, and the young taxidermist is ready to you know, carve him up so that he can be saved. You know, and the taxidermist chokes and tells my grandfather, Mr. Trainer, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I used to feed Moses when I was a kid. I can't cut him up. So the story goes that my grandfather instructed the taxidermist to explain to him how he himself could cut Moses up. So my grandfather himself cuts Moses' head off in a way where his head could be preserved. And so, sure enough, Moses is mounted in my grandfather's, my now deceased grandfather's, den. Where he would famously tell people, I finally have Moses where I want him. Anyway, how does this relate to Chris Matthews? So Chris Matthews becomes, you know, leaves Summerton and becomes this big TV star. And uh, sometime post 9-11, I think it must, it must have been like in 2002. It was, it was in that range. It was something, somewhere in that range, Chris Matthews gets uh, asked to speak at the church, basically on the property uh, where my mother and her family used to live, which actually is still named Trainer Hall is, is the auxiliary building to this. So, I mean, it's a direct connection to my, to my mother's family. And he agrees to come back to speak. Well, as part of this, <laughs> they want to take him on a tour of Somerton. And, um, and I get asked <laughs> to drive him around on his tour of his hometown. So I say, okay, fine. So I drive Chris Matthews so I drive Chris Matthews around his old hometown, and I and he asks about Moses. He actually asked about Moses. I said, "Well, funny you should ask about Moses. I can take I can take you to go see Moses." So we take Chris Matthews. <laughs> he just thinks this is the funniest thing of all time. When I tell him the whole story, we take him into my grandfather's den, 
And uh, sure enough, he is stunned to see that the famous Moses that he grew up with is now, uh, you know, on a wall. <laughs> like like he's some sort of uh, bear that's been shot or, you know, whatever, whatever uh, other animal that might get shot and, uh, and mounted as a trophy. Well, during this time period, I, you know, I, I spent, a, I don't know how long it was, a couple hours with Chris Matthews. And, um, you know, I was not particularly impressed. He's, he's a very, he's very bump. He's a lot like he is on the air. Very bombastic. He's an egomaniac. Uh, he likes to think of himself as being way more conservative than he really is. I, I had no love for the guy. Uh, but, um, you know, I also don't think he's a scumbag. All right. So the story this week is that, uh, that back in 1999, a woman was being fired from his show and made a complaint that Matthews had made some inappropriate comments of, I guess, or jokes of a sexual nature. And as part of her severance package, she was paid some sort of extra amount of money and Matthews was reprimanded over it. And now suddenly, almost 20 years later, this is a massive story that somehow Chris Matthews is a sexual abuser. When... There's a much more logical scenario here, assuming this is all that there is, which is in this era a big assumption. But assuming this is the only issue that Matthews has ever had like this, here's what really happened. A woman who was getting fired said, oh, by the way, Matthews made some comments to me I didn't like. NBC goes, oh, God. All right. What do we have to pay you so you don't sue? Because they don't want... The aggravation, they don't want the publicity. You know, even back in 1999, that was, this was a lethal issue. By the way, we're in the middle of the Lewinsky-Clinton scandal, which Matthews is covering every single night. So the timing is important here. Matthews could be, you know, hit with, uh, with hypocrisy charges because he was actually pretty tough. That's how he became famous. He was pretty tough on Clinton. For the, for the whole Lewinsky affair and all that, especially for a, a liberal Democrat. So the timing here works to this woman's favor. And NBC says, okay, fine. We're going to give you uh, whatever it is. Now, the report was $40,000, but NBC is denying that that's the number. Now, I don't know who to believe there, but it's weird that NBC is denying it pretty firmly. So it was not more than 40000 My guess, it wasn't 40000 Here's what probably happened. She got a total package of $40,000 for her severance, which who the hell knows what that means. How much was left on her contract? Was that one month's pay, two months' pay, three months' pay, whatever it is. And that part of that was, we're going to give you something extra. And oh, by the way, you're going to sign this that says you never sue us or, or, or sue Chris over sexual harassment. And she says, fine. And then just to cover all their bases, NBC writes a memo in uh, Matthew's human resources file that says, you know, Chris, uh, be more careful. That's it. That's all that happens. And guess what? This happens all the time. When you're getting fired, especially in the media business, and you know what buttons to push, and you're looking for the biggest cash payout you can get, guess what you're going to do? You're going to do everything you can. If that means exaggerating, if that means lying, you're going to do it. And if it's the only allegation like this in 20 years, this is a complete non-story, even in this crazy environment. Speaking of other non, uh, crazy non-stories, Matt Damon 
got attacked this weekend for telling the truth <laughs> that, oh my gosh, guess what? There's a difference. Did you know this? Did you know there's a difference between patting a woman on the butt and raping her? I did not know that. That was good information to have. But Matt Damon got attacked. I don't know if it's going to survive into the next week or not, but that was also... It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, Matt Damon, what he said, I, I didn't have any problem with at all. And it was t- a lot of it was taken out of context. Even Minnie Driver is... His uh, co-star from Goodwill Hunting went after him. I thought, oh my gosh, we're turning Goodwill Hunting into Goodwill Hunted. That's what was happening yesterday with Matt Damon on Twitter. Oh, we've... Attack! Attack! We must destroy him! He has blasphema! <laughs> I mean... Blasphemy! He said it again! <laughs> That's basically what's going on here. Matt Damon dared to speak the truth! Blasphema! And meanwhile, Rose McGowan, the actress who says she was raped, and I have no reason to disbelieve her, by uh, Harvey Weinstein, you know, she, you know, she was one of those that got the Time Person of the Year, which was just insane. She's attacking other actresses like Meryl Streep because you know they stayed quiet and are now going to be wearing black at the Golden Globes, and so somehow that Meryl Streep and people like her were the problem, yet. Let's be clear. Rose McGowan got $100,000 directly in exchange for her own silence from Harvey Weinstein. $100,000, which, by the way, not a lot of money if you claim you've been raped. But at 24 years old, she accepted $100,000 in exchange for her silence. Now, I don't blame her for doing that, but you don't then get to claim other people are the bad guys for staying silent when you did that. And oh, by the way, recently, according to the New York Times, Weinstein went back to McGowan and said, okay, uh, I'm going to give you a couple more million dollars to keep your mouth shut. And she didn't say, go fuck yourself. She said, how about this much more? That's what her response was, according to the New York Times. So in other words, if Weinstein had decided to pay her what she wanted, she would still be silent today. So don't give me the sanctimonious crap that you're the angel and everybody else is a hypocrite. Come on. Yet, if you attack her, which I have been perceived as doing, I, I get attacked by the mob. You're not allowed to talk about the truth about Rose McGowan because then... Blasphema! <laughs> but I keep doing it. Blasphemy! He said it again! <laughs> All right, that does it for this uh, hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast. Make sure you listen. By the way, hour number two is fantastic. A great interview with Britt McHenry, who a uh, former ESPN uh, sportscaster and now a, a Fox News regular and a conservative. And we talk a lot about this whole issue of sexual harassment in the workplace and the media in a way that you will not hear anywhere else, I promise. As always, I ask only two things of you if you're... Uh, App to do so, please share this podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, or word of mouth, what have you. And also, number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, make sure you pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. 
No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should. Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S H E E X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.